From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Few guests to PreserveCast have commanded as large an audience as today's guest, Ruth Goodman. Ruth is an award-winning social and domestic historian of British history who's been involved in several highly rated BBC television series and has used her knowledge and charm on the screen to make history both approachable and interesting. On this week's PreserveCast, we're crossing the pond to learn from a master of public history in a time when history matters more than ever before. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast, and before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. Ruth Goodman is a social and domestic historian working with museums, theater, television, and educational establishments. She's presented and consulted on several highly successful BBC Two television series, including The Edwardian Farm, The Victorian Farm, Victorian Farm Christmas, Tales from the Green Valley, and The Victorian Pharmacy, as well as presenting a variety of films for The One Show and Coast. The Victorian Farm was one of BBC Two's biggest hits in 2009 and was nominated for a Royal Television Society Award, which was followed by The Wartime Farm. In 2013, she presented Tudor Monastery Farm and The Wonder of Dogs on BBC Two. As well as her television work, Ruth lectures and holds practical workshops around the country. Her particular interest is the domestic, how we lived our daily lives and why we did the things we did. As Ruth says, we matter, how our ancestors, ordinary men, women, and children, solved the nitty-gritty problems of everyday life, made the world what it is today. She's authored several best-selling books, including How to Be a Tutor, How to Be a Victorian, and the forthcoming The Domestic Revolution, how the introduction of coal into Victorian homes changed everything. Ruth lives with her family in Buckinghamshire, England. So, um, Ruth, it's a pleasure to have you here today on PreserveCast to talk to you. Uh, I feel like a little bit of a fanboy because I've watched you so much um, here in the United States. Um, And you have a job and a profession that I feel like a lot of people dream about. So what what got you started down this path? Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Were you always interested in history? And what was your first job in this field? Oh, my goodness. There's about 96 questions. Um, uh, uh, where to start? Well, I ended up in this job because I married the right man. Um, and because... I'm not very good at conforming. <laughs> and I think that about sums it up, really. Um, my husband has been a reenactor since he was 12. And in the sort of 18 months in which we got interested in each other and then got married, um, he wasn't doing it, he stopped for a bit. And then a month after we got married, he said, come on then. I said, what? What? You want me to do what? Um, 
it was a bit of a shock to the system, really. But the people were lovely. I mean, really lovely, really warm and welcoming. And, and what um, period of history was this that you were reacting, reenacting to start? It was the English Civil War, which is okay. uh, sort of 1630s, 1640s, um, the bit when we kick out our king, Charles I, and have a go of being a Republican with Oliver Cromwell taking the lead for a generation. Right. So it was a major upheaval, and obviously a reenactment society like that is initially based about around conflict and war, which didn't really interest me at all, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. And I still have reservations about military reenactment. Um, there's a danger, I think, that one ends up glorifying war. Right. Um, and not addressing it really seriously. It's fun, it's a play, people are having a nice time. That's not what war is, and and that worries me. But very, very quickly, he and I both moved across into what might be called living history. Um, And we both found that way more satisfying, intellectually, emotionally, on every level. Um, And then I quickly discovered that the sorts of elements of that that I was interested in personally were not much written about. You know, I was I was really struggling when I went to the libraries to find anything at all relevant. Um, it was the 80s, the mid-80s, and obviously there was some sort of more social history beginning to come to the fore, but not that much. And much of that which was focused on the lives of women was very much women in the context of male institutions. It was women in the law, women in the church, you know, it, it didn't really feel to me like it had very much to do with the realities of life for ordinary women and indeed ordinary men right across the social scale. I felt very much sort of left out by the official history mm-hmm. and and sort of in a position where if I wanted to know the answers to the questions I had, I was going to have to find out myself. So that's what I started doing. And were you working in the field and like full-time professionally, did you end up doing that before the foray onto the TV? I began, well, at the first time I first started researching, I was working for the railway, which at that time was one institution right across Britain. It was called Britain, no, British Rail. And, um, you know, I, I worked as a station manager. Um, and then when I had my daughter in the mid eighties, they weren't very good at coping with women with children or part-time working or anything like that. And it became just impossible, utterly impossible. So I left and then I was sort of thinking, well, what do I do? What do I do? And so right. I gradually started turning the hobby into a business. All right. So I gradually started working in schools and then in museums, helping to sort of um, engage people in history, helping to work out ways of communicating um, in a non-traditional way between, you know, institutions institutions with all this body of knowledge and perhaps the general public who who might have felt a bit off-put in other circumstances. It was about developing interpretation styles. It was about learning more about the things I was interested in and trying to convince institutions that these were worth being interested in themselves, that, you know, theatres and museums that could actually play a part in communicating a much wider story, a story that was much more relevant to ordinary people. Right. And and that, I mean, I feel like now when you go to historic sites, that's become very common. But as you were saying, in the 80s and, and early 90s, that was not that was not the case. It was not the case. And, and I feel quite strongly when I look around me that certainly within Britain, I don't really know 
to be fair, I don't know quite what was happening in the US. So I, I just have to leave that bit. But within Britain, I think the movement for a more engaged and use of social history was very much begun and driven initially by amateurs. Um, the professionals don't like to admit this, um, but they came quite late to the party. We spent a long time trying to persuade people that there was value in this sort of approach and that um, history could become something that people took to their hearts in a much more democratic sort of a way. Um, it, it, it was a long journey and we had a lot of battles over it, I think. Right, is, yeah, is, I would bet. And you know, I think the parallel probably here in the US is interpretation regarding slavery. Um, which is a, right. a great national stain and um, is not, it, it also carries with it a lot of shame and guilt. And so it's been swept under the rug or we refer to them as servants. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of a language associated with it. And only within even really, I would say the past five years, have we seen a real acceptance of this and even entire historic sites that only really talk about slavery or talk about plantation life from the perspective of the slave, not the perspective of the slave owner, which is, has really changed things. Um, but so there, there's that whole other component to it here as well. And it, it's still playing out in some places. Um, so I think that there are, there are certainly parallels for uh, what was happening in, in, in Britain. I, I'm curious. So you, how do you make the jump though? Because I think a lot of people <laughs> would love to know this. How do you make the jump from historian, consulting historian, changing the narrative, all very good stuff to like, true TV celebrity. You've been called the queen of living history, um, which is pretty cool. It's really impressive. How do you get a gig with the BBC? Uh, they phoned me out of the blue. Really? I mean, honestly, that's what happened. I got a phone call. They wanted me to take part in a, in a year long project. Um, to go and live in the past. Uh, I think one such program had been made before and it had proved very popular and they think, thought they'd have a go at another one. Would I be interested? And of course I said, no, you must be joking. At the time I had a 14 year old daughter and um, I had a business. I mean, who can walk away from that for a year? Right. You know, don't be daft. So I said, no. Um, and they just kept phoning. I mean, basically, they kept looking around and couldn't find anybody else who had the sort of blend of interest in the nitty gritty of domestic uh, with both the sort of like research background and the doing. Right. You know? Because it's it was, very, it it's very, yeah, it's very different from there's a lot of people out there who not a lot, but there are people out there who know about domestic life and have researched it and things like that. But then the actual transition from understanding it to knowing how to make soap is is yeah. can be a big jump right i mean that's that's it's easy to talk yeah. about it and then it's like wow this is really hard yeah it is and i think if you only talk about it, you often miss things out because you don't realize and one of the real values of having practical experience is that because you're doing the whole process you find where the gaps are you know you you get so far and then you realize that none of the sources are telling you the next bit and right. you didn't even know there was a hole in your understanding until right. you try it. Right. And some of these things just weren't written down because either the people who were doing them didn't have time to write or perhaps even weren't literate um, or they didn't think to. I mean, it was just kind of common sense. Yeah. It's sort of like when you get a recipe from your grandmother and it's like missing all of these details. And you're like, how on earth do yes. you make this thing? And it's like, well, she just made it. You know, she had been doing it for 60 <laughs> years. She didn't write down that particular piece. She just thought you knew to do that part. 
Um, you know, and I, I think there's there's a little bit of that, but it's just compounded because it's, you know, we're talking about something that happened 150 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in, in, speaking of the BBC, um, the Victorian Farm is probably the perhaps one of the easiest shows to grab here in the U.S. It's available on Amazon Prime, as is Victorian Christmas. And there's some other pieces that you can pick up. Um, but tell us about that experience. So for somebody who's watching it, how authentically <laughs> did you stick to life in the 19th century? Did you sleep, eat, live on set? Was there a little bit of that? Not not all of it. How what what was the experience like okay. on set? Well, first of all, it's important to say there is no such thing as reality TV. It's all a lie. All of it. Right. <laughs> um, the process of making television means it is impossible to make genuine reality TV. It's just okay. a name we give it, all right? So, for example, we had one day when we were doing Edwardian Farm, which is the next series on, in which we tried to do nothing special just to actually follow the process of getting up and to, moving through the day. Um, and so, we obviously, I had two male colleagues, and, and obviously they were going to be filmed on separate days doing theirs, and then came okay, we're going to do Ruth's day. Um, so we all got up three hours before dawn in order to get the lights in place so that we could fake dawn if we didn't manage to catch it the first time round right. because cameras can go wrong. Right. <laughs> so, so we'd all been up for several hours fiddling around with cameras and lights and, and getting everything in position and what have you so that I could then climb into bed and we did try the first take actually at dawn, yeah. but naturally the sound went wrong. So then we had to put the lights on and film it again. And then, of course, we had to do it another time because something banged in the background. So we did that three times. And so it went on. We just went through. And by the time I got dressed, had a wash, you know, had a wash, got dressed, got downstairs, lit the fire and scrubbed the floor and got the breakfast on, it was three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. So it's just almost impossible to film it that way. It is impossible, <laughs> absolutely impossible. So, so all television is a construct. Right. Um, so you're, the, how close you can get is a sort of a different thing. And, and one of the, the places where um, I and my colleagues were sort of able to do a bit more perhaps than many um, groups would be able to do is experience. So because I've been doing the reenactment and in many contexts for many years, I mean, by that point, I've probably already done 25 years, you know, I knew exactly what it meant and how to do it and what it felt like. So you could fall back on that, um, to give a more realistic impression. Okay. So despite the fact that we're doing multiple takes and we're, <laughs> right. and that really helps, you know, to, to, to make that, a truthful thing because they have done it, but just not in front of a camera. Right. And you haven't done you it three takes so in a I row have... or, you know. Exactly. I have done it sort of for quite long periods of time for real with, when there's no cameras there. Right. So that sort of lends a bit to it. The actual filming for that Victorian farm, because we were trying to make 12 episodes throughout the year, and that's a lot of work on a, for a film crew because they've is. then got to take the footage and do something with it. So... We had two teams and we worked one week filming, one week off. And so each filming team would do one week of filming and then they'd have three weeks to sort out the footage. Whereas those of us who were in front of the camera would be working one week on, one week off. Okay. And so do you, where did you stay when you were on set? Did you stay in the historic buildings or was there a little bit of TV magic there? 
similar, not exactly the same. So in Victorian Farm, for example, we had what started out as a derelict house. Right. Um, and we only had so much budget, so we were only actually able to renovate the ground floor. Okay. Um, so the bedrooms, <laughs> and I use that word very carefully. You notice you never see the boys' bedrooms because right. there weren't any. Because there weren't um, any. Okay. The so-called mice. <laughs> and my bedroom was in fact half of a derelict room, which we, my daughter and I came and we, we literally glued the skirting boards on the day before and painted the wall so that we had sort of, the other half of the room was derelict, open to the sky. Um, really? <laughs> like that, the money, the that derelict? Okay. Because I mean, yeah. derelict, there's de there's that various derelict. various definitions of derelict. That's uh, that's like close to exactly. ruin. But that was, <laughs> it was close to ruin. Um so, but my, uh, the place we were really living was in fact the top floor of the Acton Scott house, oh. which was um, uh, sort of the attic nursery rooms and had, we did have electricity because it had some light bulbs, okay. but that was it. <laughs> that was it. Well, th that's pretty historic. So sort of as, as a follow-up to that, it seems like shows like this are incredibly popular in the UK. I mean, there's been like a, a variety of different ones and you've been involved in a lot of them. And then there's different versions where people, you know, there's historic car ones and, you know, rehab of, you know, national trust sites and things like that. Do you have any sense for why it's so popular there? And, and I mean, I, I know you're not an expert in what's going on here in the U S but we don't really have anything like that. Is there just a love of heritage that way that, I mean, is just the general population that fascinated by it? I think so. I think heritage is part of our entertainment industry and has been for a very, very long time. Um, people, after all, were opening their country houses to tourists way back in the late 18th and early 19th century. If you were a well-dressed person in 1820, you could just turn up at a grand house, knock on the door, get the housekeeper to show you around. Wow. Um, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you get that actually in, in Jane Austen, if you think about it. If you think of Pride and Prejudice, right. she goes to see Pemberley as a tourist. So, right. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and that's quite important to say that we have a very long tradition of hmm. heritage as entertainment, as something you might enjoy. Right. And, and although it starts at the top end of society, it moves down quite a lot. So that by the 1950s and 1960s, country house visiting was one of the most popular days out for everybody of all social classes. And I think that has, you know, carried on. People enjoy a day out in a heritage situation. It's something that you would choose to do as a family event all together. It's something that's very um, normal. Okay. Very much did you do it? The, did you do that as a child? Because you grew up in Wales, oh, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So yes, I mean castles particularly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I knew all about guard robes and portcullises from about the age of five or six. <laughs> Which is so interesting because it's just sort of built in. I mean, you hear that here when we interview a lot of people on this, where they talk about going to Civil War, American Civil War battlefields or Revolutionary War battlefields, and kind of being dragged there, but. There's not always the the connection to the structure, although that 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 comes, but it's it's not as it's just it's interesting that it's so popular there, and we don't really have a show or a series of shows that are similar to that. So um, it's just it's it's interesting to kind of compare and contrast what happens there versus what happens here and why that's happened. 
So you've authored some really fantastic books uh, that kind of go in depth to all of your research and kind of paint this picture. And you have one that's coming out soon, The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Our Homes Changed Everything. So what's the process for writing these? How much of the knowledge is based on living history? Um, and how much how much time are you spending in archives kind of going through and combing to get these details? I think it's that all of the books are the result of 20, 30 years of, of messing about. Right. <laughs> um, and for me, very much the research process is a two-way thing between practice and um, book-based work in that if you just do something, how do you know it has any relevance whatsoever? I mean, you know, anybody can skin a rabbit. It doesn't mean anything particularly <laughs> necessarily. Is this the way somebody skinned a rabbit in the past? Did they have rabbits? <laughs> that sort of, you, you, you've got to have a basis of knowledge for it to have any sort of historical context. Right. But I find that what, what really happens is that you start with some historical knowledge, you have a go at something. What that throws up is that you haven't understood it at all at all. So you go back and you reread the sources with slightly more informed eyes and you see different things in the written record as a result of the practical experience. And then you go, okay, well, maybe, and you try again, no, I've got the wrong end of the stick here. You know, and you try something else related. It's, it's always back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you just have to be really rigorous that you're not making assumptions. Okay. Like this works, that must be how they did it. Because it's not necessarily true. There might be several ways it works. Right. And so for this new book, which is really focused on coal, and, and you get into that in Victorian Farm, where you have the, the coal stove, which is such a change. And, a, um, and it seems like in good ways and bad ways, right? Like where you have the sweet smelling yes. wood, and now you have this sort of acrid coal that you have to deal with. But it runs hotter and is easier to tend to um do you have a coal stove at home so that you can be doing no. these so do you have to go to you have to go to places I, to do this i have to go to historic places to, and i have to say i hate coal stoves you hate them i hate them with a passion i mm -hmm. would so much rather work on wood so much rather and that, that's because <laughs> of just how dirty they are and what they smell like yes. and I guess even in hating them, though, you still recognize the impact that they had. I mean, that's what this oh, whole yeah. book is about. They are just really interesting. And there's so many different things that that change precipitated into action. One, it changed the countryside. If you, if you drive around Britain today, um, the countryside you will see is one that is based on fossil fuel use and has been for hundreds of years. We stopped using wood as our main fuel. I right. mean, you know, ages ago, way before America did, right. uh, way before. We're, we're I mean, still doing it. Well, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we so, I, mean, the, the, I mean, that is a really key point, that the switch to coal in our homes in Britain happened in London, London first, happened in London in Queen Elizabeth's time wow. in the 16th century. So Londoners have been burning coal for 450 years before they gave it up in the mid 20th century. And, um, and part of that is, uh, it, I mean, my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that part of that was precipitated by necessity that you'd cut down your forests, right? I mean, in the US, we just have, we had expansive forests that just went it's forever. It's the number so. of people per square mile. Right? It, yeah, the number of people per square mile is a huge thing, population pressure. Um, yes, in the 1570s, we simply had more and more people concentrating into one urban space, London, and the fuel market just couldn't keep up. It takes a long time to grow wood. You can't, you know, just right. turn land over like that. And there's always that tension between what are you going to use the land for growing food or growing fuel 
Right. You can't do both at the same time. So you've got, you know, the more people, there's more mouths to feed. So more land gets converted to agriculture rather than than forest or heathland or fenland or moorland. And that plays out very, very strongly um, in the 16th century in Britain. And, and let's be honest, it's playing out now on a global scale, isn't it? We are beginning to have issues in which the production of biofuels is impacting on agricultural sure. production right across the globe. Yeah. And that, that seems to be getting more and more acute. Yeah. And there's always a big fight in the U.S., particularly during presidential election years, um, where how much corn are we going to grow in the Midwest for biofuels and how much money is the United States going to throw at them in subsidies versus are we going to make enough food? And 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 I, I think, you know, it's actually kind of a transition to this next question or thought I wanted to, to ask you about, which is. You know, right with corn. I mean, now then, all of a sudden, it's like, oh well, we we really need to feed our country, and we need to have food supplies, and we're living through a pretty scary time right now um, with a pandemic and sort of the economic shock associated with that, and um, things that maybe we just took for granted before, like food. You know, you just go to the grocery store; it's just there. Um, you know, those things are. It's not as if they're they're gone, but. It's we've begun to kind of question that and and uh, realize perhaps how tenuous the the society that we built um, is. Um, and so, do you think that there's lessons from our ancestors, from your ancestors, from our collective ancestors, whether they be Tudors, Victorians, Edwardians, um, that have something to tell us right now? Is there is there is there a lesson from the past that we should be listening to at this moment? I think it's a very general one, um, not any sort of specific thing, but a very general one, that the world changes much more faster and much more frequently than perhaps we've all thought, that, that you need to be careful not to be dependent. And there are many different sorts of dependencies. And, you know, that we've become... Capitalism is fantastic and has given us a great deal, but it only has to wobble a little bit, as we're seeing, and you start to see how dependent you've become on certain things. Now, you know, the, the nature of capitalism is that people want you to become dependent on their products. They right. do their darndest to make you dependent on their products. And of course, we all fall into it to some degree or other. But this is what I think this is the lesson of history that you must always be careful. That while you want to take advantage of the things that modernity, globalization, etc., can provide. I mean, for goodness sake, nobody wants to go back to a world without penicillin or you know, right. However, you, you just have to always bear in mind that you can't become too dependent on it. You need backstops. You need that variety of skills. You need that variety of knowledge there as a base that you dip into regularly within your life, I think, in order to sort of keep it refreshed and keep it going so that it's there when you need it. Yeah. Because you never know. Yeah, you never know. And I think that right now there's a lot of doom and gloom and some really sad things happening right now. But I also think that the perhaps... And everybody says, well, the world will never be the same. And, and perhaps that's a good thing. Um, you know, I mean, here in the U.S., we had, you know, this tradition of victory gardens, as I know you did as well, during World War One, World War Two, And people are now talking about, oh, well, we should be doing gardening. And, and, and the number of gardens that you see going in right now, perhaps because people have nothing else to do as well, uh, that doesn't hurt. Um, 
that's increasing. And I think that that's a good thing. I think people sort of having a little bit for themselves or just investing in the land. And um, there can be some positives out of this. And and certainly that was something that was done. You know, if you watch Victorian Farm or you just read about the past, um, keeping a little garden was something that, you know, was not only important, but in many cases was critical um, to keeping the family going. I agree. And my mother also made a good point to me the other day. She said, oh, thank goodness we can cook, Ruth. <laughs> right. and, and that is also something, you know, she was a generation who um, lived with rationing um, as a child. And that whole mentality of how the heck do you make a meal out of the oddest of ingredients? Right. <laughs> right. How do you fit family with this? You know, that sort of skill of not needing a recipe book. You can like look at what you've got and produce something. The right. ability to make it basics from scratch that's really handy isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i mean we were we were looking at a recipe book t- a couple days ago where it's you know a depression era cake where it's like a you know a eggless milkless flourless i mean it's it's it has no i don't know what ingredients it has in it but i mean they made do with what they had and i think that that was you know we we've lived through a period of incredible abundance and we'll probably return to that um but it's it's important i think as you say Perhaps the lesson here is to to not become too dependent, to to at least have some mm. self sufficiency. So do you do you have that? Do you have a garden? Do you have chickens? What what kind of self sufficiency <laughs> is there on the you have a garden. I have a garden. I'm delighted to say I have a garden. Um, which is a great you know, it's something I really enjoy. Um I don't have chickens. Um, I live a life, as you can imagine, with filming that involves a lot of in and out and away a lot. And I won't have livestock because it's just not right Right. to to not be there and looking after them properly on a full-time basis. So I don't have livestock of any sort, but I do have a garden. And, you know, I can bake a loaf of bread if I need to. (laughs) So speaking of filming, anything coming up? You've got a book, obviously, um, which is available for pre-order right now. Anything about anything coming up filming wise? Are you working on another series? Not really. Certainly nothing particularly that's going to make it over to the US. I shouldn't think. Um, I'm doing. I, I'm just doing small bits. Uh, have been. I mean, because at the moment nothing is being filmed. Well, right. Absolutely. So lockdown just means that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll wait and see when things ease. I don't really know what the future holds any more than anyone else. Yeah. So speaking of um, nothing coming over to the US. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's, there's been a lot of examples of British shows coming over to the U S and being popular here. You know, the office being a great example of that, where it was very popular, um, in the UK. And then, you know, we had an American version. So, uh, would you be a open to recreating a period here <laughs> in the U S and if so, I mean, what period oh. would you pick? Oh my goodness. I'd have to do so much work. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that'd be fun, right? You, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah, wide a open story. Yeah, research. Yes, that would be really exciting. I think, honestly, if I was going to pick an American era, I'd pick the 1960s. The 60s? I would not yeah. have guessed that. Why the 60s? Well, I think it's such a moment of transition in American culture and history. You know, there's so much going on. It's, it's the moment in which America is really confronting racism and sexism. And it's a moment in which the the enormous in confidence of the 50s is first beginning to be slightly challenged. Right. People are thinking about new directions and new ways. It's a time when you, you've been through all that agricultural hell <laughs> way back when um, and are trying to find a new way of interacting with the countryside. And I, I think that would be really interesting. 
Okay. Well, I did, I had not expected that, but we will uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> we'll, we're gonna we're gonna start talking to folks here uh, and and see what we can do to get you over here. So, um, final question, most difficult one for anyone we ever have on this show, which is, and we ask it of everyone, what is your favorite historic place or site? Oh, I got so many. I I, I don't know really what to answer. Am I allowed about seven? <laughs> I mean, you know, we've got all the time in the world. We're both quarantined. Okay, Why not? So, all right. Uh, so there's two particular museums that I, I really couldn't choose between. Okay. They both do something similar. They're a collection of buildings moved from other places. So um, one is at St. Fagans and it is the first museum I probably ever went to in my life as a baby. My mother was born in the cottage hospital next door. Um, and it's the, it's the Welsh Museum of Folk Life. And they okay. started moving houses that were going to be demolished, you know, from all sorts of places mm-hmm. in Wales to one place. So you can see traditional houses and the, and the um, obviously their contents, but also the fields around them and the stone walling or the fencing types that went with that. And it's, it's, it's somewhere I've been to from tiny, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. tiny, 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 tiny. And they have in the past on occasions allowed me to live in some of their houses for short periods. So that's, that's pretty cool. Really and where in Wales is this? Is this in Cardiff? Um, it's near Cardiff. Okay. Near Cardiff. So in the South of Wales. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a very open, um, and culturally friendly place. Um, it's somewhere, it's unusual in British museums in the, that it's not a middle-classy sort of a place. It's very much an everybody sort of a place. Mm. So you have to, in the evenings, you can get an awful lot of the local kids off the council estates turning up for a bonfire and a bit of a, a misbehavior. <laughs> really? Okay. That sounds like a fun place. It is a fun place. I like it a lot. Um, the other is a museum that is is similar and I love it because they let me do so much there and that's the Wealdon Down Museum in West Sussex and it's a similar idea a different region of the country um southern England um so the buildings are different things but they the people there are really really nice that let me play in their buildings and this is like an open-air museum where buildings have been moved an there. open-air museum yeah yeah and I've done huge amounts of you know all sorts of things there from charcoal burning to you know well you name it <laughs> that's it and if I had to choose a historic house it would be Haddon Hall in Derbyshire, which is the most beautiful medieval, late medieval house. Oh, it's got kitchens. Oh, I can't tell you how lucky that is. There are so many beautiful houses, but they normally, the bits that are preserved are like the posh rooms. Right. Great halls and bedrooms and state chambers. And but Haddon, they've got the kitchen suite, the original. Is that an original 15th century work surface? I can't wow. tell you how exciting and they let me use their ovens as well <laughs> oh that's pretty cool that's real so it's, it's more cool it's just like uber cool <laughs> and where where in in england is this that's derbyshire derbyshire okay very cool well i mean yeah and and obviously it's hard to pick it's hard to pick in the u.s but it's it must be extremely hard to pick there because it seems like every every couple of feet you trip over a historic home um, in england i mean everything is historic there speaking of which do you live in a historic home I don't anymore. I did used to live in an old house and um, we moved a year ago. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, it's really, see, obviously I really appreciate the old, but I'll tell you what I do appreciate. No damp. Uh, oh, I love living in a house with no damp. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Yeah, and a historic house comes with its own challenges, and it's sort it of like a it's sort of like a busman's holiday for me because I get to go from work trying to save old buildings to come home and deal with my own old building. So um, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, there's that, and I, I hadn't really hadn't really thought about the damp issue, but obviously that is an issue in the UK. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has um, been such a pleasure. I appreciate so much you sharing your time with us and uh, sharing, you know, your your talents and your research um, with us here and also on the screen and, and hope to hear more and um, get to see and read your book soon, which is coming out this fall, I understand. Um, the Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Our Homes Changed Everything. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today on PreserveCast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving. <laughs>